This is a Journal of Animal Ecology podcast. In this podcast, I am speaking with Heather Williams from the State University of New York at Buffalo, who recently had a paper published in the British Ecological Society special issue on citizen science. Welcome, Heather. Hi, thanks for asking me to take part. So your paper is entitled Support for a Relationship Between Demography and Modeled Habitat Suitability is Scale-Dependent for the Purple Martin Prognosubis. Can you tell us a little bit about the paper? I can. So we use the, the Purple Martin as a case study species to really look at the link that there is between models of occurrence, which we use all the time as ecologists, and actual measures of success um, that we have from citizen scientists. Um, So these species distribution models that we use for occurrence are a tool that ecologists choose all the time to link occurrence data to the environment and come up with a map showing where we think a species will be present. Um, And we use these for conservation purposes kind of a lot. Um, We use them to predict where we should put the most resources to have the best impact for the species. The problem is that we almost always have to make this big assumption that species are most likely to occur in the places that they do best. So doing best in terms of where they're not likely to die and where they're likely to have the highest birth rate. It's actually really hard to test that assumption because normally you have to go out in the field across the entire range of the species to get that data and monitor things for a really long time. It's very laborious. One of the great things about working with Purple Martins is that there's an amazing citizen science data set which really does that for us um, from the Purple Martin Conservation Association where people have been out and monitored Purple Martin nests uh, for more than 20 years and collected a huge number of records um, about the number of eggs, the number that fledge. So using that real data, we were able to go back and validate the model that we had and actually find that there wasn't a particularly strong link between where species are most likely to occur and where they do best. So that means that at least in this case, we have to be a little bit more careful about how we use these models and what assumptions we make when we do so. Okay, so that sounds really interesting. But my first question is, what's so interesting about the purple martin? Purple martins are amazingly quirky birds. They're in the swallow family and they breed all the way across North America. But the eastern subspecies, which is the one that I work with, breeds pretty much everywhere in the US and the southern parts of Canada that's east of the Rockies. It's interesting because it is entirely dependent on humans for its housing. There are no longer any records of this species using a tree cavity or anything natural for its housing. It's entirely reliant on nest boxes, which makes it a kind of a quirky species, but it also makes it an absolute dream to work with because you know where it's going to be. Everything is nicely standardised and you've got a great opportunity to build up these citizen science data sets to kind of the huge numbers that we had available for it. I guess that also makes it a perfect candidate for having its very own citizen science project, which is Martin Watch, uh, one of the projects that you used. But you also use data from eBird and from the Breeding Bird Survey. That's three different bird-related citizen science projects and databases. Could you tell us a little bit about these projects? That's right. I mean, working with birds in general, we are lucky to have some great citizen science data sets. I think a lot of people now are familiar with eBird. Um, eBird is kind of, I would say, one of the biggest citizen science repositories that that we have. Um, And it's global. So anybody who is a birder or even just somebody who casually notices a bird one day can log in and show where they saw that bird. And that data is available for scientists. 
it's amazing in terms of its scale, the number of records, but also it, it's it is becoming truly global. There's definitely a bias towards European and North American records, but you definitely see that changing in the later records and it's spreading to be a truly global data set. The Breeding Bird Survey is a little different. That's based in North America. And that, I would say, requires a little more expertise, perhaps, from most of its users, because people who participate in the breeding survey sign up to do a certain transect, and they're looking really for signs of, of breeding birds in particular. That's another great data set because it's run for a long time, so you can see trends through time. And it focuses not just in occurrences, but on certain life stages, which make it a, a little different. And you can see things like abundance in that data set also. So how did you combine these three data sets to answer your questions about the assumptions of SDMs? So we, we started out with eBird um, and we used those kind of pure occurrence data to make the model so that that's where the birds are and we link them to the environment. And then to test this link with demography, we used the Martin Watch data set, which is where the scientists, citizen scientists have recorded all the, the nesting success. Um, so we look for to see where there's a correlation in nests that do really well with where the model predicts the birds are most likely to be. And then finally, we use the breeding bird survey as an index of abundance. So we ask the question then, so are birds most abundant in the areas where they're most likely to occur? And were you aware of these projects' existence? I guess eBird is, is so common by now, but how did you come across these projects and come up with the idea of combining them in this way? So, yeah, I've been familiar with eBird as a participant, I guess, of some of my own records in there. And then I started working with the Purple Martin as part of my PhD. And as I got more familiar with the species, I, I got into kind of recording the data myself. So there's some of my own records in the, the Martin Watch database, which is kind of fun when you find your own records to work with. So I've used both eBird and the Purple Martin data set as a participant before I used them as a researcher. And is that your first sort of experience with citizen science? Like how long ago was it before you became aware of this idea of contributing to science through voluntary work? Um, the first time I did citizen science, it was well before I went to grad school and I was working for a charity in the UK, the Wildlife Trusts. And I was my job was environmental education. And at the time, there was a citizen science project running um, called Earthworm Watch. And it, it was it was a fantastic program because they sent out a whole little kit to people who were participating and it gave you little sachets of mustard powder and vinegar. So I thought this is great. And I took school groups out with these and let them pour the mustard powder and vinegar into the soil and watch their true amazement as all these irritated worms came up from the soil. They also sent great ID guides so I could blow their little minds with seeing that, oh, there isn't just one kind of worm and they could really accurately tell the difference. So kind of seeing that citizen science project from both sides, both as an educational tool that really infused a whole lot of seven-year-olds, but also seeing that we could really submit quite accurate data to that project, I think just illustrated to me the power that citizen science could have, both as an engagement tool and as a research tool. Wow, that sounds like a really cool project too. I can just imagine children standing there looking at all these irritated worms coming out. We've had a lot of focus on citizen science projects with birds. And it's interesting to also hear that there are also projects on things like earthworms, which I think many people forget about in their everyday lives. 
Could you even have imagined doing the study you've done without the use of this citizen science data? Flat no. I think that the to, to be able to test this hypothesis, we've needed data across the entire breeding range of this species, which is half a continent, and you'd need it scattered all the way across over a number of years. Perhaps if I dedicated my entire scientific career to, to this one question, possibly, I might be able to answer the question, but having citizen science just made it a, a possibility to do right now. Yeah, I, I think there are, there are a lot of questions out there that would be interesting, but you just don't have the time within a scientific career to to really answer them. But at the same time, even though there are all these positive things about citizen science, you also often hear critique from fellow scientists saying that citizen science data can't be trusted or that there's too much bias in the data. Is that something you also come across and how do you deal with that? I, I have come across that opinion, but I, I would say I think that's something that's starting to change as more and more papers come out that really show the power of citizen science. Kind of some of the stick in the muds are, are changing their opinion. There is sometimes an issue about bias or quality. When you're working with something as huge as eBird, having a few records that are errors, it's not a big deal. It's really, it's swamped in the data. And a lot of these errors you can quite easily pick up if you see a record for a terrestrial bird in the middle of the ocean, it's probably an error. You can quite easily weed that out from your data set. There are issues around unintentional bias in citizen science because people record data near where they live and most people live close to a city. So you tend to kind of see bumps in the data and you can often pick out major cities from bird sighting occurrences. I guess we know that doesn't necessarily mean that most birds live in cities, but it rather means that most people live in cities. But we're getting better and better at statistically filtering out these kind of types of biases in the data. And we're aware of them. So once you know there's an issue, you can easily figure out how, how to work with it. So I really think that the benefits of working with citizen science data by far outweigh any small errors or biases that you can find in the data. And what do you think is needed to... I mean, you say that we're getting some of the sticks in the mud out, but what is needed to move the field forward? Not just maybe within science, but also for the public, because I think a lot of people are maybe not even aware that they can participate in science in this way. Yeah, I, I, well, there's always a, a need to get more people involved, but I think we're improving, but I, I think we need to do a better job of communicating exactly what we need as researchers from these data sets. I guess having participated in some of the particularly the Martin Watch data collection process I knew a little bit more about what the users would be thinking when they input the data whereas the researchers might not necessarily made the same assumptions so I think we need to do better at communicating what's needed in the data collection but equally importantly we need to communicate back what we've done with the data in the end um, if people feel that they're contributing to this data set, which often takes a lot of time, and they just kind of left wondering where that data went and if it's useful for anything, then we're not doing our job so well. We need to close that circle and kind of communicate the, feeding, the findings back again. So have you talked to any of the participants in Martin Watch or other projects and heard their opinion of what they get out of participating? I've chatted with quite a lot of them. I know Martin landlords, which is what we call people with Martin nest boxes. And I work with the Purple Martin Conservation Association um, who, who collect and collate this data to kind of feedback 
issues that I find as a researcher with the data set and also opportunities for, for people to record data or additional data in a different way that might be helpful. I'll also be going to their, their conference, which was postponed until next year, talk with people who, who work with the birds and a lot of the data collectors about the, the findings of our research. So is Martin, what's your favourite citizen science project, would you say? I think I have to say that. It's a great project and a great species to work with. Um, I think it's definitely up there. Could you imagine creating a different citizen science project? And if you could create any citizen science project, what would it be? That's a big question. I think I think it would be something that has the benefits of that earthworm watch that got me interested in citizen science in the first place. Something that has the potential to infuse the next generation of scientific recorders. I think there was something magical about being sent a little kit in the mail to get you started in recording citizen science for that age group. Having the proper equipment makes you feel all the more official when you're seven years old. I think something that that has those benefits, but also that has good communications back with the researchers and the people using that data is is the ideal format for citizen science, where it's really a two-way conversation between the citizen scientist and the the regular paid scientists. I think that sounds absolutely lovely. And I could imagine myself as a kid receiving a kit and having to follow a protocol and feeling very official about participating in science and contributing and helping a real scientist. And I completely agree that if we can get the younger generation interested in science and nature at an early age, we have a big opportunity to also influence maybe their interest in science as they become adults and have influence on policy and conservation matters. Right, here at the end, is there any like really good story about citizen science or something else that you feel like you just want to get off your chest oh gosh um I don't know how great a story it is but my favorite moment of working with this data set was I had to go to the Purple Martin Conservation Association office because because a lot of the records are still paper-based and they're because the data set's been running for over 20 years there was a lot of work in inputting the data digitally I probably spent five or six times longer than needed because most people that sent it in also included a little letter that told us all like exactly how well their Purple Martin colony was doing that year with photographs and, and pictures in there, which was a real joy to kind of slowly wade through as I pulled out the relevant data. But a particular highlight was finding a letter that was written from somebody working at my current field site from over 10 years ago saying exactly how my Martin colony was was doing a decade ago. So having that long-term data, and there's something special about that personal touch that you just don't get with the the e-forms these days, that was um, a pretty special thing to see. That's a great story. To be able to go back 10 years and get information from someone who sat there and really thought about how their Martin population was doing, that's really cool. So... um, I would like to thank you for being here once again. And it was lovely reading your paper and lovely talking with you and have a nice day. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. Bye. Bye.